This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science, and our guest today is Dr. Crystal Hall, professor at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington, and she is the author of the recently published article, Promoting Savings for Financial Resilience, Expanding the Psychological Perspective. Thank you very much for being here today, Crystal. Thank you for having me. So I don't usually ask interviewees to describe their non-academic jobs, but in your case, it's highly relevant to your article. And so I'd like to start by asking you about your gigs for the United States government. First, as part of the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team, back when there was one, and then as a fellow of the Office of Evaluation Sciences in the United States General Services Administration. Can you describe what you did in these positions and what you were trying to accomplish? Sure, so OES and SBST are both groups within the federal government that essentially were working to help government agencies more effectively communicate and interact with the individuals that they served. Really, it, it, all of this work, it has been about trying to find ways to make the touch points between government and those that interact with government more, more efficient, more effective. And so I can give a couple examples of that. Um, during my time working with the social and behavioral sciences team, I was helping to lead the portfolio on economic opportunity and, and working with agencies such as Health and Human Services and Housing and Urban Development in questions that were relevant to issues around economic security and economic opportunity. I also worked on some questions relating to criminal justice and communication of issues and, and tools within the criminal justice space. Um, in addition, I worked on a project, we actually just had a, a paper published where we worked with the Department of Education on improving communication to folks that are trying to identify and support students ex ex experiencing housing insecurity. And more recently, I've continued to work with OES as an academic affiliate and last summer did some work with them on a new set of COVID-related work. And we worked with the Small Business Administration to understand how considerations of equity were being made at the local level in the disbursement of COVID relief. So really this work has, has gone to a lot of different agencies, all really focused on trying to improve using behavioral insights the way that government works with, with individuals. Yeah, so that's all super exciting and important work. Thanks for describing that. So drilling down into the topic of your current directions article, which is applying psychological science to get people to save more money. Can you give some context for this issue? How big a problem is insufficient or inefficient savings and why might we think that psychologists are well positioned to, to move the dial in terms of getting people to save more? Yeah, this is a, a huge problem. And it's something that has been a, a behavioral puzzle that both policymakers and psychologists have spent quite a bit of time thinking about. We know that most households, when you look within the United States, 
don't have a lot of emergency savings. So um, a recent study that I found estimated that about 40% of, of American households have $500 or less that they would have quickly accessible in an emergency. About a quarter of households have nothing. So they're essentially living month to month. And you can look at that next to the reality that, you know, among home, homeowners, for example, about half of homeowners experience at least one unexpected financial expense per year. And that doesn't include other types of financial challenges. And so lost hours in work can cause an income shock, unstable and unpredictable work schedules. This is, this is particularly exacerbated by the rise of the gig economy over the last decade, as many families often have income streams that are just quite unpredictable. And this is particularly true for lower income households. And so the, the pandemic in the last year has really put a spotlight on many of these issues, but they're not, they're not new issues. We saw this come up a couple of years ago with the very large, very long federal government shutdown where families were really put into crisis when they missed only one paycheck. So it really is, it's a huge issue. And I think it's particularly ripe for intervention using insights from psychology because so much of this is about some of these basic challenges that we know that we have in humans in terms of, of self-control and, you know, trying to delay gratification. I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to more deeply leverage some, some psychological insights in the way that we try to address these problems. Great, great. So I, I was intrigued by your description of a kind of program that connects savings behavior to lotteries and, and gambling. Uh, I think you called it prize-linked savings. Can you describe how these programs operate and how well they work? Yeah, these are really, really interesting programs. And, and typically they've been offered by smaller credit unions or banks. And the way that they work is, is relatively straightforward. So someone that's a member of, of one of these credit unions um, can sign up for this program where you purchase these shares, which are essentially work as these lottery tickets. And, and in most cases, I believe they're around $25. So you, you buy one of these shares and that earns you an entry into the drawing for that month and also for quarterly drawings. And as individuals make deposits, they can earn more of these entries into these drawings. And then the prizes will range from usually around $25 up to $5,000 that, that are awarded either on a, a quarterly basis or, or a monthly basis. And then individual credit unions may also offer additional prizes for their, for their members. And so these can be really effective and there's, there's great evidence, there's research that's been done on, in psychology that shows that lotteries may be motivating for individuals and particularly motivating for individuals that are that are experiencing poverty or, or workers and consumers that are in low wage and low wage work. Um, one of the downsides to this is that obviously people have to have an account to participate in these types of programs. There can be penalties if you do withdraw money early, you can 
potentially have some penalty, may not be eligible for these. And, and we know that there are, are big issues around access to these types of tools in the first place. And so I think for folks that, that have accounts and participate in these types of financial institutions, these can be really powerful ways to incentivize people to, to save more than they might otherwise. Yeah, great, great. Uh, so are there programs for increasing saving related behavior that are not yet widely in use in the United States, but you think are promising from your perspective as a decision scientist? Yeah, one that is has been really fascinating to me that is not widely adopted in the United States are these rotating savings and credit associations. They call them ROSCAs. And these have been have been studied um, in, in Africa quite a bit, but they have existed in some form all over the world. You find them on, on every continent. There are these different programs and we call them Roscas here. They have, they have different names in, in different places. And, and typically these are, these are organized within communities where individuals that are a part of these groups have a, rules that they agree to among their among their units. So it might be four or five individuals where they agree to an amount that will be contributed over some period and then have rules for how they're dispersed. And so what this allows folks to do if if you know if you're in a group of four and if everyone can afford to put in $25 a month, maybe you know once a month somebody then gets to take $100 and can spend that on something that it might be harder to otherwise save for. And so they provide a form of of informal savings and essentially credit for individuals that might not have access through a formal financial institution. And these have been shown to be particularly powerful for groups of women. They're very common among among women and we've found that um, a lot of immigrant communities in the United States practice these in situations where they might not be participating in the formal financial institutions that many of us are more, are more familiar with. And also interestingly, many of these have evolved and there are examples of folks using these in, in virtual spaces where, where traditionally you might see this in a, in a small city or village or community that folks are, are physically coming together and, and contributing and working together. There are uh, examples of this where folks are, are virtual and they're not together. So I think it's a really interesting model that leverages a lot of social psychology and provides access in a space where there's inherent trust and a lot of other uh, factors that that make people willing and able to contribute where they might not have that same trust or understanding of how a more formal financial tool or system operates. Yeah, that's a great idea to leverage this the idea that you have some responsibility to this, this small group where you know the particular people who are in the group and make you committed to them. That's, that's really neat. So it seems that different incentives are going to motivate different people differently. So what role do individual differences play in getting people to, to change their behavior? Are there noteworthy differences between people in terms of what motivates them, either based upon their personality or their personal attributes or their position in society? 
Yeah. So I think there is so much potential to think more about individual differences. And this is a space where I think we're, we're starting to learn more and more about this. And I, I think, I, I hope that this is an area where we'll continue to learn. There's a, there's a great example. There's some work by Linda Thunstrom who talks about this idea of emotional taxes and nudges. And so uh, in, in these studies, we're looking at, uh, uh, she's looking at calorie count nudges and finds yeah. that they tend to essentially subsidize people with have, that have higher self-control when it comes to consumption. And so the folks that would be better at, at exerting their self-control, they're much more highly impacted by calorie count nudges. Relative to people who have lower self-control in these spaces, those are places where they, they describe this emotional tax where they are gonna be less, less impacted by these things. And so, in this space, you see that there might be an overall positive effect of this nudge, but when you look more closely, the actual impact is ranges from positive to negative when you look at this, this particular individual difference. And so I think there's so much that we can learn from that work. And I think psychologists are starting to think more and more about this. I think when we also, in the in the world of public policy and thinking about government's role in this, there's also really interesting work that talks about um, this idea of a partisan nudge bias and this idea that, you know, in general, people find that the use of behavioral interventions and behavioral insights as being more ethical when they are illustrated to people by examples that fit with their own political beliefs, but they think about them as being highly unethical when they're illustrated by examples that don't fit with their political beliefs. And so it's this is a place where I think also we can learn a lot about how we frame these things and how we talk about about some of these tools. And when you take away any type of partisan information, um, those differences go away. So it doesn't seem that, you know, the acceptance of these types of tools and approaches is really partisan in and of itself, but the framing seems to matter. So I think there's a lot of space to think more in a more nuanced way about how people view these things, how nudges are impacting different communities. And so that can be about individual differences, that can be about other types of cultural context. So I think there's just a ton of work to be done to think about this and really going beyond this idea that these huge blanket nudges potentially work for everyone in the same way. Yeah, great, great examples. Um, if I can ask one final question, um, it's to ask you to generalize beyond your article's immediate goal of describing interventions for promoting savings behavior. Um, what are some ideas from behavioral research science that you find particularly promising in terms of suggesting interventions that a government might make that would have a large and positive impact on improving anything about uh, citizens' happiness, their health, their well-being? Yeah, I, I think that just to pick up on, on where I went before, I think that behavioral science is at a place where we can really start to be a lot more nuanced and in our approaches to how we think about these tools. I think I think part of that is is aided by the fact that you know, there's a lot of data floating around in the world and there's a lot of talk about what we do with data. I think there's also a lot of opportunity there. And I think when we think about the way that a government interacts with folks, I think we can really consider that 
we consider that a lot. And I, and I think that um, as we move, especially right now, we're in this very unique position of, of beginning this process of finding a new normal um, as we transition out of the crisis mode that we're in with the pandemic. And I think that's a process that's going to, you know, it's starting now over the next, you know, couple months as vaccines roll out. But I think the reality is that we're going to be going through this transition probably for the next couple of years. And I, I think it's this... <laughs> But I think it puts us in this really unique position of of just we'll be establishing new cultural norms. I think there are, I think things about our prior culture that may not ever be exactly the way that they were before. Mm -hmm. And government has a has an opportunity and I think a responsibility to help shape that process. And I and I hope that they will take psychological science into account as they do that. And so, you know, that this goes for really simple things like what are norms around wearing masks moving forward, right? Um, but I think there's also a lot bigger questions about how we manage you know, our health systems, how we manage our financial support systems when people experience crisis. I think there's a lot that mm -hmm. psycho psychology can do in those spaces. And then I think the, the other thing that I'll say is I think that there's also huge opportunity for behavioral, for behavioral science to think more about how we interact with bigger conversations around structural and institutional bias, even on a larger scale. And so social psychology in particular can tell us a lot about a lot of these interpersonal relationships and issues. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity to, to think more broadly about how that intersects with structural and institutional bias. And so, you know, this year we've had so many conversations about the role of race and racism in, in, in the United States in particular and um, how, you know, that shows up in, in our policies and practices. And I think that psychologists have to be at the table to contribute to these conversations. And there's so much opportunity for us to contribute to to what some of the sustainable solutions to to these issues will be moving forward great right great okay um that's all the time we have for our conversation with dr crystal hall uh thanks very much crystal for the valuable conversation thank you great conversation i appreciate it mm -hmm.